Hello, frazzled women. Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. This is your virtual lounge for frazzled type A's, imposters, and activity addicts. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin Snyder. And I always like to remind everyone this show is usually two women having adult conversation. So, Now would be a good time to grab headphones or hit pause if you have folks around that would not be cool with the kind of language we may or may not use during the interview. So just a heads up. And if you're new to the show, my job as host and salonier is to introduce you to modern women across different industries who are leaving their unique stain on the world and not letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. Today, I'm really excited for you to meet Kara Rhoda. She's an editor at Macmillan, often works with a lot of food-related books, and she's going to talk about where her passion for food came from and how it came to be. And we talk a lot about how we think about food and things like that. And then she also is the host of her own podcast called Clever Cookster. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, it's great. It's short episodes. It was a very different format than you're used to listening to if you've been listening to the Vital Core Salon. And let's be honest, I could go on and on and on about Kara. She was someone that I met at a really interesting time of my life where I was downshifting from my career in finance and took a job where I was the controller of some smaller startups. And one of those startups was Cookster. And Kara was working on Cookster. And so we met and realized we had some common interests. And over the years, our interests and our connections have sort of randomly crisscrossed. So this was the first time we've gotten to catch up in a long time. And we got to share it with you and talk about all sorts of different things and talking about feminism and talking about people's relationships with food and eating and... There's so much to unpack in this episode, and I know I learned a lot. I hope all of you do too. I know today's episode is a little bit longer of an episode, so you may have to break it up over different activities or however you structure your listening. Please know that I'm psyched for you to listen. I'm psyched for you to meet Kara, and I'm going to stop blabbering and just take you to the interview. Hey, Kara, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. How are you? Really good. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited to have you here. I mean, and it's been so long since we've gotten to catch up in a non-email way. So this is exciting, one, for that reason, and two, so I can hear what you've been up to. It's true. I've been such a fan, and I've been kind of recommending that people listen to your podcast and um, thinking about the great work that you're doing. So it's great to catch up, and it's great to catch up recorded. Yay! Thank you so much for sharing the show, because this is like the little podcast that could, and I'm mostly a one-woman I'm mostly a one-woman machine here armed with a virtual assistant part-time, so any help getting the word out, I, I deeply, deeply am grateful for. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I think the podcasting is so fun because, as you know, I've also started doing one in the last few years, and it's not a format that I really knew anything about, but it's so accessible not only to listen to, but also to get started doing. And I feel like they're also different 
um, they're also unique, but what you're doing is relevant to so many people. So it's been a really fun one for me to aspire to. Awesome. Thanks. And maybe you can talk a little bit about Clever Cookster. Yeah. So Clever Cookster is part of the QDT branch of podcasts, which is part of Macmillan Publishers. And QDT stands for Quick and Dirty Tips. So <laughs> they have now about 14 different podcasts, which is kind of amazing. It's like a, a podcast engine over there. Um, and the one that started the whole thing, which you may have heard of, is the Grammar Girl podcast. And it's really just bite-sized tips, tricks, things that you always wanted to know, things that kind of stick in your head that you can then later share at a cocktail party. Um, so it started with this grammar podcast, and now they have so many. There's an etiquette one, there's a technology one, there's a dog training one, and I do the Clever Cookster, which is a food podcast. And when I came to Macmillan um, through Cookster's acquisition uh, about three and a half years ago at this point, um, one of the first things we talked about was really getting Cookster integrated into Macmillan as a food community and starting a podcast as one of the arms of that. So when they asked if I would host it, I was kind of excited. I'd never done podcasts before, but I love interviewing people. Um, one of my first jobs was at Irish America Magazine, where, among other things, I did a lot of interviews. And I found that I just really loved that kind of conversation, that kind of thing that happens where someone comes to you with what they think their story is and then you can kind of tease out what the real story is it's sort of like sculpting you're you're creating something from the narrative that someone's putting in front of you and you kind of work together to make it something different and maybe even give them insights they haven't thought of and I loved um, I think the power in that and I thought it was really fun and I was excited to try doing it in a new medium that's such a great point about interviews and really how sculpted they are, but also like the difference between what what the interview guest thinks their narrative is and kind of like the outside perspective of someone looking at all the usually cool things, at least in my world, that people are doing and the divergence between right, the two and I sometimes. Think it's usually the things that people think are boring about what they do are usually the things that are the most interesting to other people. The sort of like, oh, well, you don't really want to know the nuts and bolts of how that works. Like the details are kind of boring. Um, those are always the things that I love to learn about people whose work is different than mine, because that's how you kind of imagine, how does this happen? Like whether I'm talking to a chef or a cookbook author or someone who's created a food business or someone who's doing something really logistical, like food businesses, you know, are some of the most logistics-heavy businesses out there. And just kind of the nuts and bolts of how people learn an industry, how people learn how to do something that they love, that's really fascinating. I am 150,000% with you on that point. And you would probably appreciate this, but there is an indoor park in East Hampton, Massachusetts. And they're doing, like, hydroponic vegetables and all sorts of stuff in an old converted mill building. And it's it's called Mill I love Park. It. Yeah, it's Mill Park 180 if you want to geek out a little bit more. But what in listening to you what made me think of that was I was talking to the owner. And you know, it was early on and so he was sort of working behind the bar cuz they do, you know, beer and wine and cider and local snacks and things like that. And he was, you know, he started talking about how you know, he started coming up there because his daughter went to school there. And then his love of creating communities and also this love of technology. Turns out he had owned a software company 
for years, and he was trying to apply artificial intelligence to, like, how they track and buy the ingredients that they keep. Like, was there a way to, like, scan milk as it came in and then have, like, using artificial intelligence kind of have that nudge the chef, like, hey, make something with more milk because the milk that you brought in is going to expire soon. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the food technology visions that people have had, both the ones that have been executed and just the ideas that have yet to exist, um, it's kind of amazing. It's just so incredible to think about the ways that that really changes every part of the system. Right? It's mind-blowing. And it's got to be interesting for you because I feel like we're just talking about Clever Cookster and just sort of the podcasting, but the whole other part of your your life and your work or your life at work, I should say, is that you're also an editor at Macmillan. And so you see people's ideas before they even come into fruition. What is what is that like? It's the best part. I really, um, I love editing books. I sort of came into it sideways, although I had worked at a magazine before um, I came to Cookster. So I had sort of knowledge of print media, how it gets made. Um, I knew how to proofread and copy edit and I knew how to do editorial in a way that involved working with authors and writers. Um, but doing it at a publishing house is a whole different proposition. It involves so many more logistics, so many more systems. Um, Macmillan is a really big publisher. Not everyone knows that of the top five publishers, um, Macmillan is the only one that's independently held. So that means that they make some pretty interesting investments in technology and in business models and in other things that I think are pretty exciting. Um, it's a company where they're really focused on what's next in publishing. And so I feel like one of the questions that I'd already learned to ask because I was coming from the tech startup world, but continue to ask as an editor every day is what's next? Um, what are the books and what are the ideas that aren't even getting pitched in my inbox yet, but that are really going to change um, how people think about this genre, whether the genre is cookbooks or memoir or other types of nonfiction. So you have a crystal ball or how does that, how does that work for you? How do you do the research? Twitter helps. I think a lot of it is just listening. It's just sort of Seeing also where the gaps are in my knowledge, something that I've really been focusing on in the last few years is thinking about, okay, what are the voices that um, I'm not hearing as much and why? And where can I go to look for those voices if they're not in the places where I'm already looking? Um, I started thinking about that a lot because I was working on an anthology called Freshman Year of Life. And it's an anthology that was edited brilliantly by my colleague, Bryn Clark, who's a really fantastic editor, Um, but we worked together to sort of source the contributor list for this anthology, and the idea was that it was going to be a book by people about their first year, first few years out of college, where you have a degree under your belt, um, but you're really trying to figure out how to be a person, how to meet those goals that you thought you would someday reach, whether they're around career or relationships or relocating to a new place, Um, and we really wanted to think about what kinds of different perspectives and what kinds of different experiences could exist in these stories in this book. We often hear kind of a traditional model of someone going to school, majoring in something, getting an internship in that something because their parents know someone, getting a job in that something. And that's, you know, one way that things happen. 
Um, but in this book, we have people who didn't go to college. We have people who went to college for one thing and then decided that it was absolutely not what they wanted to do. We had people who dropped out of college because they saw something else that was going to take them in a different path. Um, and there are a lot of stories of things that didn't go right. There are a lot of stories of being taken advantage of at your first job and what that feels like. Um, or dedicating everything to a relationship and then realizing that it's not going to grow with you. Um, and they're really real stories. So when we were sourcing the contributor list for this book, we really wanted to look in different places, um, think about voices that are not often um, represented and what they had to say. And that's something that I feel like is a huge responsibility in publishing um, in general. I feel like I'm talking around it a little bit, so I just want to say that what I'm getting at is publishing is hugely white. It's hugely white women. Um, so it's not necessarily something that is as easy to talk about as some other industries where there's kind of this image of this is something that's run by straight white men. Um, publishing is pretty much staffed, at least, not necessarily run by a lot of white women. And the questions of representation and the questions of own voices um, in publishing are questions that have been talked about more and more in a way that I've been aware of in, in the last several years. And there are some really smart people doing some really smart work on this stuff. But I think that it, when it comes down to it, it's really thinking about hiring and thinking about who's in those meetings where we're making decisions about which books to publish and then thinking about which books we're going to publish, which stories still need to be told, which voices are not being heard and how can we help lift them up. Um, and I feel like now more than ever, that's a huge responsibility that I have as an editor and that we all have in this industry and beyond this industry. And it's a really interesting point because it's, I think, maybe not everyone is as naive as I was, you know, but I think at one point I started to take a lot of what was coming up in sessions and ideas as I've been doing this work over the last eight years and thinking about like, what do I do with this? right? Like there are lessons to be learned in all of this. And I started to go down the path of a, a book and, you know, okay, what would be the obvious steps? Like, okay, you build the proposal, flesh out the ideas. And it seems like from the outside looking in that it's this very, what are the right words? That it's this very rote process, right? Like this is how it's done. So it's interesting to think like on the other side, there's all these business needs that that need to be met. And then also like how much the connections that people have, right? Like, so if it is a bunch of white women, for the most part, running this industry, you know, generally, they're probably going to run in white circles. And then women of color are sort of boxed out of that process a little bit. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I think definitely. And I think that something that um, is interesting to me is that you know, the connection, one of the connections that we share is that we both work together in a tech incubator. Um, and I know that before that you had worked in tech in sort of a more traditional way. And one of the things that I have thought a lot about is coming out of tech and coming out of a tech startup world, um, I was so aware of what it was like to be a woman in that industry and to deal with the myriad amounts of conversations and interactions around feminism and around feminism and in tech startups and around um, what it means to deal with being a woman in that environment that I was not particularly focused on intersectional feminism in the way that I am now. It just wasn't um, as much a part of my awareness. And I spent 
a good amount of time um, really kind of trying to fix that, trying to learn and trying to read things that weren't in my consciousness and um, seeing how that changed me, seeing how that changed my perspective and, and what I wanted to prioritize and the work that I wanted to prioritize and, and the work that I wanted um, to amplify that other people are doing. And I think that the first thing to remember, whether it's in publishing or in another industry or in organizing, is that whatever great idea you have in a room is probably something that someone's already doing and doing really well. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of seek out voices that are already established, um, that already have audiences, that already have platforms, that just because we in a particular meeting might not be aware of them doesn't mean they don't exist and, and aren't significant and powerful. So I think a lot of it is just sort of, you know, looking at what we're reading, looking at where we're getting our news, looking at where we're, we're getting opinions and kind of seeing what else is out there and, and reading different places, reading widely. I mean, I think for me, that's been the biggest change in how I'm looking at this business and the kind of books that I want to work on and my politics and pretty much everything. How do you decide what kind of books you're going to work on? So one of the things that I love about Macmillan and specifically Flatiron, which is the imprint where I do most of my books, is that every book is really treated differently. Um, I think there are, you know, there are some situations when books can become a little cookie cuttered and it's sort of like, okay, here's three different templates that this can look like and the author picks one and you kind of go. But at Flatiron, I really never see that happen. I really see every book being treated in such a, customized and, and thoughtful way. And I think that, you know, what I what I mean to say by that is that there isn't necessarily kind of a flat iron book. I think there are a lot of different kinds of flat iron books. There are a lot of different kinds of Macmillan books. I have kind of a unique position in that when Cookster was acquired and Cookster's founder, Will Schwalbe, who had been in publishing for 21 years before leaving to start Cookster, um, was kind enough to bring me along with him with the acquisition to Macmillan, um, we have a position where we acquire and edit books for different imprints. So I have a cookbook series with St. Martin's Griffin, which is one imprint of Macmillan, and then I have a lot of other books with Flatiron. And those books have different personalities. They have different audiences. They have different formats. Um, they're different in, in many, many ways. And I think that there's not so much one kind of books that I do as I really love doing author-driven books. I really love um, having that relationship with authors and, you know, building out that conversation with them where we really figure out what can this project be. Um, the cookbooks that I do are really across the map. A lot of them are cuisine-oriented. I love stories about people who are rediscovering a cuisine that belonged to their family, that maybe um, their parents or their grandparents had emigrated and cooked more Americanized food. And then in adulthood, people kind of go back and, and discover this cuisine that they um, had these beautiful memories of in their childhood, but they had never really um, learned to make themselves. And there are a few books I've worked on that fit in that category. Um, one is The Gefilte Manifesto by Jeffrey Yaskowitz and Liz Alpern. And that's a book about basically revitalizing Ashkenazi <laughs> Jewish food. And that book changed my life because I didn't really know how to make saltwater pickles before that. And I started pickling and they were so good. It was so cool. It was a science experiment. <laughs> You've and gone down the well. <laughs> and 
I'm like, I will never stop talking about these pickles. I bragged about them like every day that I made them. Um, and it was just this like really fun, like, it didn't feel like something that I was learning from decades ago that was not relevant to my everyday life. It felt really vital and exciting and new. Um, and now I'm working on a book called Kashka by Bonnie Morales, which is a Russian cookbook um, with a, a restaurant in Portland that does just really, um, really interesting and delicious Russian and Eastern European food that is so colorful and so vital. Um, and Bonnie has done so much for this book in terms of the design and making it really beautiful and making it really unique and having all these kind of Easter eggs. And I love when books have Easter eggs, those kind of things that you don't expect <laughs> and you turn a page and it's kind of an infographic or like this, you know, cartoon all of a sudden and you're just like, oh, what is this? This is not what I was expecting. I love that. So I try to make So you've worked on more than one book that have Easter eggs as part of it. Yeah, for sure. There's um uh, the first book that I worked on is Justin Warner's cookbook, which is called The Laws of Cooking and How to Break Them, and it's such a fun book. It's um I could talk about this book forever. There's <laughs> basically his idea is that there's these laws of food, these archetypes, these flavor archetypes that dictate why things taste good together. So a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's a fruit, it's a fat, and it's a canvas. And together, that makes kind of this perfect bite. It's just so balanced and so delightful. And so that's the law of peanut butter and jelly. And he uses that law, fruit, fat, canvas, to introduce everything from lamb and Cumberland sauce um, to, you know, bacon, artisanal jam, individual toasts that are cookie-cutter into palm trees. And he has these kind of tasting menus that are ridiculous and fun and experimental. Um, and anyway, the Easter egg... For that book is that the footer text um, on every page, except a few, is usually the title. So it's the laws of cooking and how to break them. But then on about 20 different pages, the designer put in Easter egg texts. So sometimes it's <laughs> the paws of kittens and how to pet them, um, etc. Amazing. And Kara, it, I have to note this as I'm listening to you, your passion around food. Where did that come from? Um, I, that is a really, I've actually, I've never heard the question phrased that way. It's a question I'm used to answering, but I'm trying to remember like the moment when I became passionate about food and I do not remember a time when I was not passionate about food. I have my, my <laughs> childhood food memories are so strong and so deep and <laughs> probably like some of my most important sensory memories um, ever involve food. My mom was a macrobiotic chef when my brother was growing up. My brother is 13 years older than me. So my mom was raising him macrobiotic. And it got to the point where he, as a kid, was so desperate for candy that he stole candy from the corner store. And she was like, okay, this is too much. I've deprived my child. So I got off a little bit easier. I was not raised quite as strictly, but she was always really into healthy food. And I was growing up in South Jersey in the late 80s, so there was a lot of wheatgrass, there was a lot of juicing, like my parents had all these juicing books. Um, but also, you know, we ate a lot of normal stuff. We ate a lot of pasta and chicken. And um, my dad is Italian, and he grew up in South Philly. And so when he cooked, it was, you know, maybe cabbage and potatoes or 
um, I remember he would always do like a rotisserie chicken with baked beans and the mixed vegetables. And that was like a dad meal. <laughs> I love like the dad meals that people remember. That's one of my favorite things. You got off easy because when my mom was out of town, I got Dindy Moore out of a can. <laughs> there you go. The dad meal. Um, but I always like, I love people who always like, yeah, my dad never cooked except he could make this miraculous pot roast. Like he just had this one thing, but it was just so perfect. One thing that I've noticed is that, do you know, like all guys think that they make eggs really well. Have you noticed that? I am married to one of those gentlemen. There's like this weird matzo thing around making eggs. Yes. It's everyone. Yes. And it's it's funny. Um, I had a recent conversation with one of our common friends, Miguel Banuelos from Salsa Pistolero. Mm-hmm. And I think we were at a rock and roll show and I think we talked about ways to make eggs for a good 30 minutes. You would have appreciated the conversation. It was sort of bizarre, it, you know, waiting for the black angels to come on talking about scrambled eggs. Yeah. But <laughs> I think I'm just bitter because I worry that I don't make great eggs. I don't have a lot of patience is one of the things that's a detractor for me as a cook. Um, I, I am just not great at those things that just require doing it exactly the same way every time with patience and calmness. Like, that's not my cooking style. So eggs are not (laughs) ideal for me. Um, But when I was growing up, we had chickens. And so we would get eggs, you know, from from the chicken coop. Um, And I think that was probably the most excited I've ever been about eggs. I had this sort of fantasy of, like, Charlotte's Web. And we were uh, on, like, two and a half acres in South Jersey in a house that my dad literally built. Um, So I had this kind of idyllic, like the, the suburbs were right around the corner. It wasn't the country really, but I had this sort of, um, and I was homeschooled too. So I had this sort of weirdly fairy tale secret garden little world um, with the chickens and, and the fantasy of having a pig, which we were never allowed to have sadly. Oh, bummer. When I was in Western Mass, <laughs> we had we had six of them as neighbors and they were wow. lovely to hang out with, at least you know, before they went on permanent vacation. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that people always think of is that I'm vegetarian. It's like a common misconception. Um, and I feel like, I really feel like I'm going to be. Um, but I feel like it's really hard because when I was growing up, there was always this sort of tension between my parents around food and that, you know, my dad came from this Italian family in Philly. Um, he has three brothers. And so when we would go to Uncle Tony's house for Christmas or Uncle Frank's house for Easter, my mom wouldn't eat what the food was because it was meatballs or sausage or lasagna and pasta and cookies and these things that just like were not part of her um, lexicon. My mom ate a lot of, even before she became a raw vegan, she ate a lot of like baked potatoes. She had this real, I think, kind of appreciation for the simplicity of eating one thing, like usually a vegetable and just really being present and appreciating it. Um, which is nice, but like, it's also great to fill your plate with 15 different types of things with cheese on them. And (laughs) I feel like there was always this sort of like tension of, she just wouldn't buy in. She just wouldn't participate um, in what for everyone else was this very cultural moment of love. And that's always the thing that I struggle with whenever I have been vegetarian or vegan for any period of time is feeling like I can't participate in that way. 
And for me, I don't know if it's because of the work that I do or just because of the level of emotion that I have around food, um, I just haven't quite crossed that hurdle yet. Is it, I guess, is it a hurdle that you want to cross, right? Because there's, there's sometimes, and in my world, one of the things that I have to help people unpack as a health and lifestyle strategist is recognizing when we're eating for the brain versus when we're eating kind of for our heart or eating for our gut and like really recognizing, you know, the challenges. Because I can tell you personally, you know, I transitioned to vegan for a while and at first I felt really, really great and I was careful and I was educated about it and I was following all the steps and within about three years, I just was fatigued. I felt awful. Like it had depleted me so much. So even though I so deeply wanted to eat that way from an intellectual point of view and, and kind of leading with my heart, my body was just sending the memo over and over and over. You know, I was dreaming about lamb. I was dreaming about eating salmon. Yeah. One day I had a daydream. I was eating a salad and I, you know, I'm eating and I'm just sitting outside kind of looking at the clouds while I was eating. And I looked down and at one point I thought I saw like rare beef in my salad. And I don't even like beef like super duper duper rare. But I had this like moment where it was like a vision. And I was like, for the love of God, I just have to, <laughs> I just have to come to peace with this. Well, I think there's this thing that happens, like mentally, the more you fixate on it, the more it consumes you. And I think that there's there's kind of a few assumptions about how food and eating works that I, I really would like for us to challenge. And one of them is that you have to eat the same way all the time, and you have to eat that way forever. And I think that that's one of the things that really trips people up and that really feels like such a roadblock is is this idea that you have to commit to it for the rest of your life and you have to commit to it 24 hours a day every day for the rest of your life it's an extremism and i think that a lot of the way that we eat in america is different kinds of extremism and um you know i i tried it i tried eating very strictly and i started out um by doing basically an anti-candida diet so i cut out gluten i cut out sugar i cut out a lot of things that um, I really love. And I ended up giving myself an eating disorder for the better part of three years because I became so fixated on what I was and wasn't allowing myself to eat and defining how I felt about that day and how I felt about myself that day based on how well I'd followed these rules that I set up for myself. And it wasn't about food in the end at all. It was, it was about control and it was about um, trying to control things in my environment that I that I couldn't and controlling things about what I put into my body instead. And that happens to so many people and it is a real part of so many people's journey with food and I feel like that's something that I would like to be more honest about um, because it hasn't always been easy. My passion for food hasn't always been um, all good and all it hasn't always felt good. Um, and so I feel like that's something that we don't necessarily talk about a lot um, but I would like to be more honest about. And then the other thing that I feel like um, we really get stuck on is this idea that there's one r right way to eat and <laughs> that new science is appearing every moment yes. that changes all of our beliefs about the right way to eat. And, you know, I think one of the things that I catch myself doing is 
not really being honest with myself about the quality of the food that I'm always eating. And I think that's really the biggest consistent thing that we've seen um, in studies that have come out over the last long while is, you know, it's not so much about is butter better for you than olive oil, is better for you than coconut oil, et cetera, et cetera. But kind of what's the quality of the food that you're getting and what else is in it and how are those things affecting you? Um, And so I might have in my head, well, I eat meat occasionally, but it's always really great quality and the cows are taken really good care of and they really like the artisanal grass that they're fed and like they all have names and birthday parties and flower crowns and it's great. (laughs) Like in reality, like I ate McDonald's twice last week. Like that's something that I just need to be realistic about because it's not necessarily bad it's not the end of the world you know I went on a road trip I went camping it's it's not every day but I just feel like acknowledging it and then letting it go is so much better than building that guilt and letting that that feeling of you know how how I'm going to feed myself and every single thing that goes in my mouth is going to define me um that can get really overwhelming so Kara what you were describing was orthorexia like when we get so fixated on following the the strict food rules that we set for ourselves at all costs. And then you've come to a place in your life where you're like, yeah, I can eat McDonald's. I was camping and, and being able to kind of very quickly do that calculation for yourself. Like, is this okay? And being at peace with it. What helped you get from A to B? Um, a few things. And I think, um, you know, I think it definitely started out that way. It started out as I'm doing this to be really healthy. And then once I started weighing myself twice a day and really fixating on that number and really thinking about, um, how I felt different, um, then it, it was less about being healthy. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to eat half a jar of peanut butter, but that's it. And I'm not going to eat it again for the rest of the day, which is not particularly healthy by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so I think it started out um, as sort of a healthy obsession and then became quickly not so, so much one. And this was several years ago before we really talked about self-care. Like I think now um, the, the word self-care was not in my lexicon then. Um, but now, you know, when I think about self-care, I do think about kind of the slippery line between self-caring and a vice and how some of the things that I might use to self-care are not necessarily um, healthy for me. And maybe they are for me, but not for other people. Or maybe, you know, I need to think about other ways to explore um, what self-care means that are, are less about what I'm putting in my body or how I'm spending my time and more about just like how I'm spending time with my thoughts and how I'm learning to listen to what I want. So I think that one of the things that was really big for me was just learning to listen to my body saying, I'm hungry. I want to eat this. I'm not hungry anymore. It's okay to stop eating. And I know that's, you know, what a lot of people say, but it really was, was true for me that that realization, that ability to realize I'm hungry now I'm full, but it's okay. I can eat it again later if I want to getting used to doing that. Um, took a long time and also a great therapist. And also um, I started running. I ran two marathons in the process of um, no longer having an eating disorder. And I feel like that was obviously really helpful for me too, because it was 
a way that I could think about my body as powerful and strong and able to do something rather than um, being impressed by my body because of what it wasn't doing, because of what it wasn't consuming. Kara, thank you so much for opening up about this because... I wasn't going to talk about that at all. It just happened. <laughs> it's the it's the curse of being on a call with me. Sometimes stuff just comes does it out. happen on your podcast a lot? I feel like it probably does. Yeah, there's been at least a handful of times where after the call ended, people were like, oh my God, I didn't... I, I don't know where that came from. I just felt like I was talking to you. What happened? Can we can we not use the show? And I'm like, why don't you think about it for 24 hours and tell me what what's going to be lost for other women if we just scrap this? <laughs> so, but I think I think what you're sharing hits so at the heart of what I hear and I've been hearing basically behind closed doors. I mean, I I work by phone or Skype mostly. And honestly, most women I work with choose to not have me look at them. So sometimes I think my days are kind of like spent in Catholic confessional, right? Where it's like, okay, Mm. tell me, tell me what's going on in your life. That's a great analogy. That's so true. It was really funny because I mean, so for everyone listening, Kara and I met when I was transitioning to this work full-time where I was still the controller of Cookster, so doing finance. And that was like my last job in finance. Like you caught me at this strange year in my life where I was cutting over from one career to another, transitioning to this work. And I had a space, like Vitalcore had an office in a co-working space in Tribeca. And I was so excited to be able to talk about the things like you and I were just talking about with women in person to like be able to give them a high five, to be able to give them a hug. And what was funny was that I would have basically a session or two with someone and then all of a sudden they would want to like, could we just do this by phone or Skype? I'm, you know, my meeting got out late. I'll miss half my appointment if I get on the subway now or I'm traveling this week, but I want to keep the session And slowly but surely, like, all the clients were, like, dropping out of real life for me. And I was sometimes Mm. just, like, sitting in that space by myself with a laptop. And it's interesting as I think back over the eight years and kind of how I structure the work now and how it comes, you know, how I structure the work and how it takes shape. And it's so interesting to me that there's this veil that when women are talking to me about what they are or not eating or how they are or not taking care of themselves, that it's almost like they don't even want to be seen by me when we're talking about it. I'm interested. What are your thoughts? One of the things that I've noticed about my modern life, and I don't know if this is true for other people, but I've noticed that I'm really drawn to um situations where there's sort of this uniquely standalone enforced intimacy of a certain kind of interaction. Um, And I feel like part of that has to do with living in New York for so long. I've lived here about like 11, 12 years now. And there are so many interactions that I have with so many people that are so brief and so fleeting. And I find that I'm really drawn to the depth of conversations that I have with people that I might not even talk to all that often 
or that serve a particular role in my life. Um, and I find that often I do really like to have those conversations not in person. I have a, a best friend, my best friend from high school, who always wants to FaceTime. And I'm always like, oh, Mary, like, I don't, like, can't we just talk on the phone? Like, she's so funny. And I think I feel really guilty because, honestly, part of it is probably because I want to be able to check my email a little bit. Like, if I see it, if I see that I got a text, like, I want to be able to read it without her noticing. Like, if I'm actually going to go put away the dishes, I want to be able to do that. It's like, why can't I just sit down and have a conversation with this girl that I love? Um, But it's something about, you know, the in-person interactions that we just aren't used to having them that often or or maybe we are just feeling guilty about spending that time without allowing any other distractions in. One of the things that I love about going to therapy that I've always said, and I've been going to the same therapist for probably like seven years. He's like my longest adult relationship. <laughs> and one of the things that I love is that's an hour where I can't check my phone. And how nice is that to have that enforced time where all I am doing is having this conversation and I'm not allowed to look at my texts or check my calendar to see what's happening next or think about anything else except that conversation. And someone will tell me when that time is over and I can go and I won't be late to anything else because it's already planned. And that just really, that takes care of a lot of anxiety for me just doing that, just putting my phone in my bag and doing something else for an hour. And I've found that more and more, I really want to dig out the space to do that for an hour here, an hour there, because it makes such a difference. Um, I have such a love-hate relationship with my phone. I love it so much. It's changed my world. I talk about my phone. My friends will tell you. Um, I don't know if you've read, like, the Golden Compass series. No, I haven't. Pullman. Well, there's the, the premise, among other things, is everybody in this world has like a, a demon, which is their animal, they're like their animal that's that's tied to them, um, kind of in this in this physical, spiritual, psychological way, and with this magical substance. And when it gets too far away from them, they both they and the animal feel physical pain. And anyway, I joke that that's like what my phone is. Like if I can't find my phone for a few hours, it's a real, it's really a lot of anxiety for me. I have so much anxiety around my phone. I'm sure that's something you hear a lot, too. Um, it's just this sort of constant feeling that, like, someone needs me. I have to do something. There's something else I'm supposed to be doing rather than being present right here, right now. So I love interactions that kind of force me to forego that. Um, and this is probably one of, one of the few I'll have this week. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know what the answers are, but... I just feel like there's this big pull that it's we're somehow pulled together more by technology. Like I can go online and I can look and see what friends in Europe are doing or a friend in South Africa is doing or people on the West Coast are doing. And I don't feel far away from all of the people that I know. But then at the same time, I mean, just my own experience and the experience that I'm hearing in sessions and in conversations with women that were somehow further apart. Like gone are the days of, you know, men hanging out in billiard rooms and women hanging out in sewing circles. And there's a lot of ways that that is wonderful. And and those gender stereotypes are slowly changing. 
But at the same time, we've lost that intimacy. We've lost that connection in a real human-to-human way. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But I think that the flip side of that, like the challenge to that is, have we really lost that connection or do we just have a different connection with people that we otherwise might not have much of a connection with anyway? I feel like a lot of the people that I have maybe a surface relationship with through social media, if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't be having coffee with them instead. I probably just wouldn't really be thinking about them at all. So in some ways, um, I mean, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about Instagram a lot because I spent, so I deleted Facebook and Twitter off my phone for Lent and then I just left them off forever. Um, but I kept Instagram and I, and I think the reason why is because Instagram doesn't make me anxious. Um, most of my experience of Instagram is like really great, funny, like feminist mental health memes from girls who are like mostly in college that have these huge followings making really performance art. Um, of a version of their lives that they're cultivating and, and showing an audience of thousands of people. And I've always been fascinated in that. When I was in college, I majored in technoethics and wrote a, my senior thesis about, among other things, um, you know, how technology changes the way that we communicate and look at each other and, and our conception of reality. And I think that the ways that specifically young women have been able to shape their own image online have been extremely positive and extremely powerful. I love selfie culture. I love the idea of getting dressed up just to take a picture of yourself um, just for you and putting that online and having just this supportive community. And it's often like other girls who are like really excited about it. And I think that's really positive. I think that's really um intimate, even if what you're sharing isn't quote-unquote real, if, if, if it's just a filtered version of your real life, I don't think that really matters because it's a version that you want to share and, and there's an art in that. I think there's something um, interesting and powerful and positive and real in that too. So what I'm hearing is you see the selfie culture as performance art. Yeah, I think it can be performance art. I think it can really... I think it can be a self-esteem booster. I think it can change how girls look at themselves and think about how they look, um, often at a time when they need that more than anything else, to be able to control their own image and to consume and adapt their own image can be a lifesaver. I, I wish I'd had that. I wish that we'd had selfies. I mean, we'd like barely started to have webcams when I was in like my sophomore year of high school. And I, I think so often about what would have been different for me if, if technology had been different, if I'd had then the thing that girls have now. Um, I mean, I just feel like there's, like, girls now in high school fight back against dress codes. I feel like I was pretty radical in 11th grade or whatever, but I didn't really know we could do that. I didn't really know, like, you know, in sixth grade, I didn't really know we could push back and say, like, actually, if you have a problem with us wearing this, that's on you. Like, I just, I really, I feel like girls are coming to feminism um, largely through the internet, largely through technology, largely through other young girls creating content that is inherently feminist for them um, at an earlier age. And I think that that's really exciting. I think what you're saying is so fascinating. And I think 
Because let's be honest, I am of an age where there were no webcams, you know, when I was in my junior high and high school years. You know, I was too busy walking around as a nerd with a Franklin planner, you know, in my locker (laughs) and in my backpack. So it's from my perspective, I just I see it and I don't necessarily understand it. So I am deeply grateful for hearing this totally eye-opening different viewpoint than I would have considered. I guess one of my questions is how do these young feminists protect themselves? Because it's also a time of trolling and just this really deep, pervasive, judgmental energy out there sometimes. I think that's such a good question. And I think that that is, it's sort of the question, you know, of, of how to be a woman online and now to do work as a woman, to do almost any kind of work, you to be a public figure, um, you are subject to so much harassment, um, so much hate and negativity and, and threats and danger and doxing and it is appalling and I think you know the question of how do girls protect themselves I mean the first thing I always think is well how would they answer that question how would um you know a 17 year old who's making memes who has a 200,000 person following answer that question and and I can imagine one of the things um that they might think about is that they're not safe anyway I mean in this world in general to be a girl is not to be safe. So to say making art is too dangerous is not, I think, an explanation that, that women have ever accepted. I think also there's a really solid community. There's a really, I think, there's a willingness to stand up for one another. There's a willingness to use the tools available. And, you know, we talk a lot about how on Twitter um, block tools and tools against harassment are not only really um, not cutting it, but they're, they're often used against the people who they should be protecting. I mean, on Facebook, this is huge. I don't know if you saw it. There was an article about it last week, but like it is so much easier to get your account blocked on Facebook for, for activism um, than for actual sexist or racist hate speech. It's just really, it's hard to get those accounts reported and blocked. Um, and a lot of that is because of who's doing the filtering and from what perspective um, the filters and the idea of, of what is an appropriate sentence. So I think that, you know, the question you're asking is really, what do we do about the fact that the Internet is such an unsafe place for girls and women? And um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I have experienced all kinds of awful things on the Internet, um, but also in real life. And... I'm not sure that one was any worse than another, but I think that for me, the community um, and the knowledge and the power and the communication channels um, and the education that I got from technology was always, always worth the price. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of women are continuing to do their work are continuing to make their art are continuing to um, try to get the word out in the midst of, extreme threats and harassment and they will continue to do so um and i think it's the job of of the rest of us to do our best to protect them 
Yes. And I always appreciate watching you in action online. And I know, I know you've stepped in a few times. In terms of Facebook, I always, even when I don't agree, especially around politics, I, I've really been pushing myself in the last few years to hold the space. Because I feel like there's this great divide where people are not listening and we're just sort of shouting at each other, but nothing's getting comprehended in between our two ears. And that's getting more and more polarizing. So I always try to play the role of referee and like, all right, let's just hear what everyone's got to say. And like, I've seen you, you just bravely step in. Like you are incredibly articulate. You aren't afraid. And, you know, I've definitely seen, you know, some of that splatter land on you and land on me in certain threads of conversation over the last couple of years, for certain. And I I have to say, like, how how do you as a as a person, as a human being who cares about people in the world and cares about causes that are important to you, like when you're hit with that kind of hatred? What do you do in the moment, and then how do you heal after the fact? What does that process look like for you? Well, first I want to say that I just really, I love that phrase you use, hold the space, because I think we have so many conversations right now about basically whether it's worth it to try to be empathetic in conversations with people who hold beliefs or excuse beliefs that are inexcusable. And I think that really is the fundamental question. How do we be polite to people who don't acknowledge our humanity, our right to exist, um, our right to share the same rights that they have. And something that's been really hard for me is that I tend towards anger. I tend towards um, just really wanting to tell someone off. And I know that a lot of that is just anger I have in me. And I know that often um, it's it's righteous anger, but it's not always mine to have. And so what I've tried to do is try to think about, okay, What are the interactions where I'm really just wasting my breath and where I'm just putting myself in a situation um, to be vulnerable and to end up feeling badly? And and when can I try to hold the space, like you're saying, and hear someone out and maybe show them something in a way that they haven't thought about so that they don't then, um, you know, take their incorrect beliefs on in the world and, and share them with someone who's maybe more affected than I am. So... I feel like there are issues on which, you know, around feminism, um, around sexual harassment, around sexism, issues that I feel I've experienced really personally and are very difficult for me to talk about patiently when someone's saying things that I feel are are untrue or unfair or damaging. Um, But then there are issues like police brutality. Um, There are issues like immigration reform. There are issues where I feel like I can have more of a role of hearing someone out, kind of listening to them, wrestle with their thoughts, maybe say some things that are pretty dumb, that are pretty messed up, that are racist, but kind of just absorbing that and then offering them a way to think about it differently. And that doesn't always work. I want to say that, like, I am not (laughs) by any means arguing that we should be empathetic. I, I don't believe that. And I think that most of all, we should never, ever, ever be telling people who are affected by an issue to feel any particular way about it or police their tone about it. So I feel like the, the issues where, you know, I'm, I'm not affected are the places where I can be patient and, and try to do my best to get somewhere. 
Um, I would never say that anyone else should have to do that on an issue where they feel like it's just too close to home. Um, and I, so I, I mean, holding the space is interesting because to me, it almost, it feels a little Quaker. It feels like a little bit of a Quaker concept, <laughs> this idea that we sort of can, because holding the space isn't just about making room for one person's opinion, right? It's also about kind of pushing back where necessary to make room for um, something that isn't being heard. So holding the space can be not only, you know, hearing out someone who's maybe has a racist belief they haven't unpacked yet or is making an assumption that they don't realize um, has implications that are, are really going to be detrimental. It's also kind of pushing back to hold space for the people that their views are harming. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's kind of the place where I'm, I maybe um, do a little better. I do tend to want to get angry and really just kind of, I just, you know, there are some things where I just really feel like people are wrong and it's not okay and it feels emotional. Maybe it feels emotional um, to me because I've had so many interactions with people that I, that I love, that I'm close to, as we all have, that, you know, have involved them holding beliefs that I feel are really wrong and inexcusable. And what do you do? Um, sometimes. I think you really just douse them with, with facts and data and be firm. And sometimes maybe you hold the space. I don't know. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. It's, it's, really it's also hard. context, right? Like how do we speak up? How do we speak up at work? How do we speak up um, in situations where maybe we have the opportunity to educate but don't have necessarily the most power in the room? Um, this is something that I feel like I've always struggled with, and I was lucky to go. I mean, first I was lucky to be raised by a mom who really always encouraged me to speak up and say what was right, and then I was lucky to go to schools where I feel like I also really learned how to do that in an articulate um, and persuasive way. But I don't always, and it's really, it's a struggle for everyone. It's a struggle for some people more than others, but I think the thing that we just can't do is, is let ourselves off the hook. And, you know, everyone contributes in different ways, and having that argument for the 50th time with Grandpa isn't everyone's way. Like, that's <laughs> fine. Call your senator. You know, do something else. I don't, you know, I don't think it's always worth it, but I do think that, I mean, I feel like I've seen people be, I've seen people's views shift. I really have. I've seen people come to understand things that they didn't before. And, you know, I think of that generally on the spectrum of people who are democratic and liberal and left-leaning, but don't always realize how, um, you know, that still can be a very privileged viewpoint that deprioritizes a lot of people's um, needs and rights. So I feel like, you know, since the election, we've, we've seen people maybe become a little more radicalized, I hope, which is, which is good. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've, I've seen a lot of people be, be pushed all the way, um, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think different approaches are going to work with different people. I mean, if I've learned anything about coaching women for years and really just training as a coach and thinking about how to better communicate with people. I mean, that's something that's uber important to me. 
you know, people listening may hear me ask silly questions or whatnot, but I'm always deeply thinking like, how can I connect with the individual in front of me? Because we are all individuals. And, you know, it. I think you're right about seeing it shift. And I, I know, and it's not easy. There are nights where I see like, you know, there's another comment posted on Facebook and I think I'm probably going to puke when I read it because I'm going to have to really just stop and breathe. And like, you know, for me, I, def- I default to anger too. I've been a hothead since I was, probably came out of the womb. I came out like six weeks early because <laughs> I was like, get me out of here. I can be the boss of things. And And I think where I've seen the most success is really approaching conversations like I do in my sessions, you know, where it's really grounded with, from a place of tell me more. And, you know, I've really seen over time that sometimes people's initial comments, because sometimes, you know, people aren't as focused on being articulate or having their own unique way of saying what is what they're really feeling or experiencing. That when you ask more questions and and I try to come at it from a place of not being judgmental, but really just, I'm really initially grossed out by what you just said, but like, let me, let me ask you some questions. Are you willing to take some questions? And what I've found in some cases, it wasn't about what they were feeling necessarily. It was just sometimes poorly being communicated it became a semantic problem as opposed to a philosophical problem. And that's, I think those handful of instances have been some of the few moments where I'm like, okay, I just got to keep working on this from this angle because this is where I see more change happening with the people that I'm communicating with. But that doesn't always, you know, but that doesn't always fly with everyone else. Some people are like, I stop asking me questions. I don't want to think. This is my viewpoint. I don't do well in those situations. Well, and I think a lot of it is just knowing where to put your energy, where to, um, you know, having a sense for where there is room to kind of work with someone, to kind of have that conversation and see where it goes and, and where you're really just, in some cases, I think validating someone's viewpoint by engaging with it. I think there are things that we just can't engage with. There are viewpoints that are just really not acceptable. Um, And I think we need to take them seriously. I think we need to, um, you know, not excuse them or minimize them or kind of shrug them off, but really just acknowledge that that they're not acceptable. And, And that's, sometimes I think that's the only way things change is just by society deciding to refuse to accept a certain viewpoint anymore. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things that I've really encouraged people to engage with, the people I know that live in New York, is that this is not just a problem of people somewhere else in the country and in places that we don't go. This is a problem. Like, there are people who are racist in New York. There are people everywhere um, who are really, you know, still espousing views that, I think many of us were naive, naive enough to think we're kind of gone. And um, I mean, I've I've gotten arguments with strangers on the subway in the last 
few months. I feel like I have heard people say things out loud. I think people are emboldened. I think bigotry has become really emboldened since the election. And that's not that's not something you can kind of empathize with. That's not something you can have a conversation and try to shift someone a little bit away. I mean, I think I think it's it's okay to just treat that as unacceptable and say I'm not going to engage with it. What's happened on the subway? Like how how are you able to stand up? Because I know women listening, and definitely I have some Type A's and some leaders in this crowd for sure. But it's really it's really hard to think about like standing up. And I know when everyone was pinning safety pins on their bag and I was really thinking about if I put one of these on my bag, like I'm going to have to show up even if I feel like I'm going to barf, even if I feel like I'm going to shit my pants because I'm so scared in that moment, I am going to have to show up. What allows you to do that? Where does that come from for you? Well, I think whether it's on the subway or in a meeting or, you know, you're having lunch with someone and all of a sudden something comes out of their mouth that just makes you do a double take, there's always that moment of, am I going to let this slide or am I going to say something? And, you know, first I just want to say that obviously the choice to become involved is a privilege in itself. And the choice to say, okay, I'm going to stand up and make this my problem is a privilege because for a lot of people, it's just part of walking down the street. Just like for me, walking down the street is that um, men are going to engage with me in a way that I particularly don't want or consent to. Um, For a lot of people, getting on the subway is there's a possibility that someone is going to say something horrifically racist to you at any point. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's almost, it's, it's kind of the least I can do. That said, every time I feel like I said the wrong thing or I wish I, you know, I come up with something great just afterwards. Like once I, um, you know, there's this woman that said something racist to someone else, to another woman on the subway. And um, the woman who she had said something to was kind of like with a few people, like she was fine. She didn't seem immediately like in distress but I I felt like I wanted to step in and just you know let her know that I also thought what she was saying wasn't okay and I said something really dumb like you really shouldn't say that you know like a third grader and then right (laughs) afterwards I was like shaking and right afterwards I was like I should have I should have really told her off but it's weird it's like it's weird and hard and it's so easy on the internet you know we're all so used to to doing it on Twitter and on Facebook and you know, coming up with really great pithy expressions of our legitimate outrage. And I am so good at coming up with a really appalled sentence online, but it's hard in real life. And that just means we need to practice. You know, every time it gets a little easier, just like calling your representatives is really weird and kind of scary the first few times. And then it's not so much. And if it still is, like if that's not what, what you can do, if that's not within your capability, um, or the way you're going to be involved for whatever reason, like that's fine. There are so many other ways. There's so many different ways that people can be involved. Um, some people protests are great for some people. Some people can't be in crowds and that's fine. Like that doesn't make you any less of an activist. There are so many different ways that people can contribute. Um, and so I feel like just taking as many opportunities as I can, um, 
is is kind of the best I can do. But there are plenty of moments when I don't speak up in in all kinds of contexts for all kinds of reasons. And I, you know, I I would like to be better. I would like to feel more confident. I would like to feel more prepared. I would like to feel, um, I would like to feel like I'd always have backup. You know, it's like you never want to be the one person in a room or in a subway car or in an elevator or in any given situation. You you hope that you know part of it is also that we'll show up for each other and you know, maybe it's something as simple as if you hear something in a meeting and you didn't say anything, but you feel like someone else heard it too, just, you know, taking them aside afterwards and and talking about it, if that helps, Um, kind of acknowledging it to each other, just, you know, you're not crazy. I also experienced that. Um, I think that can go a long way, even if it isn't this big kind of public confrontation. Yes. Just, I think if we can begin to just even acknowledge those moments, because I I think I was, I know I was really surprised and I was a first generation college student and I went to UMass and the whole time I was there, you know, I was studying to be a CPA. So studying accounting and then strangely on the side or not so strangely considering my changing careers, sociology, um, but all along the way, it was like sexism wasn't talked about. Like it was kind of like it was, you know, the glass ceiling, you know, isn't there like it used to be. And it was, you know, when you started interviewing, it was like, oh, no, at, at these firms, everyone's equal. And then I like landed in a job in I started initially in Boston, but definitely saw it worse when I did get to New York where I was like, uh, where are all the women? (laughs) Like, what? Where is, you know, but it wasn't spoken about. And, you know, there were definitely times, I mean, my God, I I remember one job having to ride with three dudes out from the Upper West Side to Hop Hog, Long Island, every single day and night. And it was pretty much like constantly new what action they were getting, like just hearing how they spoke about women until one day I just like lost it and literally got had gotten no sleep for a few days and just like lost it and screamed at all of them. Like, do you know how sick I am of hearing all of this? Because it was just, there was no outlet for it. Or at least I didn't know what outlets there were for it at the time, because you certainly weren't going to go to HR, not if you ever wanted a promotion or a raise ever again. And I I find... Well, and I think that's true still for so many people. I think that that sort of... um, It's really important to be realistic about that, that that many people put up with interactions and microaggressions in everyday life that there really is not much recourse for. I mean, you know, we're talking about it in terms of a job, but... For a lot of people, it's, you know, going to the grocery store, it's yes. going to the post office, it's interacting with people on the sidewalk. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I live in Bed-Stuy, and I notice, like, the way that people walk on the sidewalk, like, the way that white people walk on the sidewalk, and the the difference in how they feel entitled to take up space, like, it's just something that I've noticed. And it's something that is is immediately visible to me but I I you know might not have thought about it and that's sort of you know just how people go through the world the subtleties of those interactions um you know you can't go to HR for that you can't go to HR and say I'm really 
fucking sick of people looking at me that way. Um, there's, there's no HR for just like our society treats people really, really differently depending on race and ethnicity and sexuality and gender and all of these different things. Um, so it's sort of like, like, what do you do? What do you do with that anger? Um, what, I mean, how did it go when you confronted them finally? What happened? It was silent for 45 minutes. And I think I would have to guess a lot of fear that I had hit such a boiling point that I was going to go to HR and they would all be in the shit because it was really gross. Like the behavior I was putting up with constantly. And, you know, I I don't look back and You know, I'm not proud of emotionally losing control like that at work. Um, I mean, screeching, like ugly-faced screeching. Like, I, it had been months, and I had just had it. Because an hour and a half each way or more of just sexual harassment and just male grossness. Like, I always just felt like I had to wipe the testosterone off. And it was... Isn't that interesting, though, that their immediate reaction was fear of getting in trouble and not remorse <laughs> for having hurt someone or, you know, anything like that? I think it was it was mixed. I mean, th- there's definitely one one person I know from, from later conversations. You know, it, it wasn't fear. It was just like, oh, shit. I just hadn't even been thinking. And I think at least from a conversation we had had subsequently, you know, it was really like they looked at me as one of the guys and, you know, mm-hmm. at least how he explained it. And and I, I really feel like it was it was honest and not just backpedaling, that it was kind of like, you know, because there weren't a lot of women doing what I was doing, a lot of times I was one of one, if I might be the only woman on a project or maybe one of two. So... You know, in in that case, I mean, I think he saw me as like, I've just always kind of thought you were one of the guys. Like, you know, I didn't mm-hmm, I didn't mm-hmm. even think about the difference because this is just how us guys would all act. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't coming from a place of aggression. Th- you know, the other two questionable never really was able to have a conversation or any sort of dialogue with either of them about it. But it it was you know, not one of my finest moments for certain. You know, I, I still think of it and like, oh, I wish I had the emotional control that I've worked on having over the years. And, you know, there's still some work to be done for certain. But it, I wish I handled it different, you know, to your point of like, oh, it's like that moment in Bridget Jones's diary, right? Like where she kind of like says a thoughtful introduction like how she really would like would want to say it and then kind of like it flashes to the next screen where it's like what she would want to say. And I I was thinking of how it's like in You've Got Mail. The part where Meg Ryan's talking about how you always think of the great comeback afterwards. But yeah, <laughs> yes. I feel like it's something that I guess it's something women experience a lot because it's apparently a rom-com trope. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's in that so much has changed and so much hasn't at the same time. But I, going back to your original, whether you meant it as a tip or advice, but I, I think I heard it as such, 
that idea if we can just start acknowledging what's happened. You know, whether it's confronting the person in the situation or just kind of, you know, looking around the room and see whose eyes you met and who gets it and just having the conversation with them after. Like if we just start talking about it, it's not this big 800-pound gorilla in the room all the time. Or maybe it won't be. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that also just not being defensive. Um, You know, if someone is brave enough to call you out and say, hey, you know, you said something that that I'm not sure if you meant it that way, but here's what I heard and it sounded kind of off. And, you know, knowing that that takes courage and to kind of take a moment and really hear that criticism and, and think about it and think about what you're learning from what they're telling you about how it was heard um, rather than being defensive and, and rushing to say, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way or, you know, you're overreacting or um, you're just making something up or whatever people might say. Um, I think just kind of really listening when someone is, is able to share with you that, that maybe you've said something a little bit off um, and really trying to understand why I feel like is probably one of the biggest things that, that people can do. And that's hard. It's hard too. It's all, it's all hard. Um, but, you know, for some of us, the privilege to choose to engage, I think, is also a responsibility to really engage and, and really try hard to learn and to be present and to, to do our best just to witness, if nothing else. Yes, so true. And, I, you know, I, I feel like I could pull out a soapbox and step up on it. You know, I mean, this is where I wish... And I am definitely not someone well-studied in education. I mean, like I went to college and I studied, but but how people learn is something that fascinates me, but not something – I've studied it on an as-needed basis, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So this is coming from a, a very novice approach, but I, I feel like that's when it makes me think, why are we not teaching things like meditation in school? Why are we not? looking at ways to teach emotional intelligence in school like really like just basic eq skills of of listening and asking questions and and the power in that and how easy it can be to help people not just jump up and be defensive in those moments like how much more we could hear each other how much more we could hear each other's ideas how much more we could function on a team together and recognize people's strengths and personalities and how to leverage those better. I mean, I could go on and on and on because this is the stuff that fills my head, you know, and my journal and notebooks and Evernote and all sorts of things because I, I sort of geek out on it. But it's like the what you're talking about requires a savviness that we're not learning or at least not everyone is learning across the board. It's not this common core skill set, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, a, a lot, you're asking big and, and great questions. Um, <laughs> Damn, Kara, you, know, you don't have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the good news is that there's so much that people can do on their own, and there's so much that there's just so much great material um, online, in books, there's so much that people haven't read. Like I hadn't read Angela Davis until this year. 
Um, that was a huge gap for me. Prison abolition was a huge gap for me. That was something that I'd never been taught about, that I'd never really read about. Um, so I felt like I should I should learn more about it. And I feel like there's there's just so much great material. There's so many great reading lists. There's so many resources for people to really start to educate themselves. Um, and I think, you know, to really put the burden of education on people who are complicit in a system that's oppressing other people. So, you know, I think the thing to do if you feel like, you know, you want to learn more about Islamophobia is probably to, to do some reading and to do some research and to figure out who's writing about this stuff, who's talking about this stuff, rather than going to an individual person and saying, like, hey, can you educate me on this? And, and putting the burden of basically providing um, a personalized curriculum on, on someone who's already dealing with the effects of it in their daily life um, there's just so much you can you can do yourself. There's so many great resources. And I think that that's really one of the things that I love about technology. That's one of the great things about the content available online is that there's so much you can learn just by reading and listening um, and being really conscious and, and learning to be, learning to question your sources, learning to figure out where things come from. I mean, I think now more than ever, the idea of, of truth-telling and, and who is able to claim the right to the truth um, of the narrative is a, is a really huge deal right now. And, and learning to check sources and learning to be responsible readers is, is really important for everyone right now. And I know that's something that you really dig into. And what would you say to people who are like, how do I even begin to know what's real and check sources. Are there any tips or advice that you have? Well, I think, I mean, a big part of it for me is sort of, you know, what's the information that you're looking for? And I think that I found information that I was looking for because I, I was looking for it. It's not like I'm a person who um, believed that the crime bill was a great thing and then I decided to pick up a book on prison abolition, I already had an interest. I already had a hunch about how I was going to feel about it. So it was much easier for me um, to do that work educating myself. If I decided that I wanted to believe something very different, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure where, where I would start to look. But I think that if, you know, if you, if you have the intentions of wanting to learn more, um, wanting to hear more from voices that maybe you haven't thought about the perspectives of that much, um, I mean, I, I believe in books, which might not come as a surprise. I think that books are a great resource. I think that um, reading about people's personal experiences always kind of makes things hit home for me. Um, you know, reading memoir, reading personal essays, reading women. Um, you know, I feel like I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years reading women of color, writing about their experiences in America, and that's really changed my perspective that's really changed what I look for in in the stories that I want to help tell and I think that that's you know read more women of color is probably my biggest piece of advice if if there's a an overall takeaway in terms of um who's telling interesting stories right now who's talking about things that need to be heard and also not just books but there are some great podcasts there are some great um websites there are some um, really great social media accounts. So, you know, whatever platform works for you, but 
uh, I think I think that's the biggest takeaway is just look look at who you're not reading. Even fiction, like I I feel like it's very easy to when we think about the fiction canon, it's just a lot of white men. It's just a lot of novels by white men, and some of them are great, and that's fine. And there are many of them that I love, but there are so many things that aren't assigned in schools that aren't considered, you know, classic must reads that that really should be. Um, so just kind of reading broadly and widely is, I think, a, a, a big part of it. Amazing, amazing advice. And here's a question or a slight twist on, on what we were talking about. One of the things that I hear from my clients and one of the things that I am sometimes guilty of myself and have to keep myself on a short leash is when I want to learn something – I'm much like you. Like when you were saying, I believe in books, my heart was like pitter-patter, pitter-patter. <laughs> but all of that takes time and all of that consumes energy. And I know there are probably at least a couple of women whose faces I can picture even who are listening, who if you say go learn something, they don't just read one or two books. They go out and they're trying to read like 40 books and know everything and all the gory details, and get into the weeds, and really understand everything, sometimes before they even feel like they can have a voice or be part of the conversation. How do you balance that wanting to continually be learning and educating yourself with not burning yourself out? Wow. Well, I'm going to I'm going to focus on the book piece of it because I feel like that <laughs> the burnout question is a bigger one. Um, but I think, you know, in, in publishing, I feel like I'm in an ongoing conversation of, oh, have you read this yet? And very often I have not yet read the thing that I have supposed to, that, I, that I'm supposed to have read. Um, and it can feel really like, it can feel like showing up to class and not having done your homework, I think, especially in this industry, especially when there are so many it books that, that come through and that everyone's talking about. And I've found that the only way that I can really avoid it is just by doing what I've always done, which is just read what I'm drawn to and, and read what I love. And um, I'm lucky in that I'm a fast reader. I was an early reader. Um, when I was homeschooled, the big focus of what my mom was doing with me was teaching me to read really fast, really early, and really well. And so I kind of took off running, and I've always been um, a huge reader. And the deal at the library when we'd go once a week was I could get as many books as I wanted, but I could only get one Babysitter's Club book. That was the rule, like one per week. So <laughs> Were you like, like me that you could like, like read seven of them in a day? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, like Netflix binges are nothing compared to the Babysitter's Club in bed binge. Um, <laughs> But I've always kind of liked reading a lot of different things. I've always liked reading really commercial fiction as well as really literary fiction, as well as kind of philosophical borderline nonfiction, um, as well as straight nonfiction and, and memoir. And um, for me, it's really just about being pulled into the prose and someone's really great writing, no matter what it's about. There are a lot of things I don't really read, Um but in general, I'm, I'm just really pulled towards prose. And I also am lucky that I have the subway commute. So I, I commute an hour each way. So that's a, that's a reading hour twice a day. Um, and I'd rather do that than check emails or, um, you know, watch someone pick their nose on the subway. So that's kind of prime reading time. But 
No, I know not everyone everyone has those blocks built in and and I'm I'm lucky that it's such a part of my work in my life, but I know that for a lot of people just reading a great article um in five different chunks in between trying to make dinner and do eight other things is is a lot and um you know, I think it's just read what you're interested in, read what you're drawn to. I mean, I've always been a believer in, you know, pick up something for any reason. If you like the cover, that's a great reason. If you like the title, it's a great reason. There's no bad reason to pick up a book. Um, and if you don't like it, you don't have to finish it. I think people also get like very completed into this. Oh, I started it and now I have this like pile of books that I'm halfway through and what am I going to do? And I, I just can never read a book again. So if you didn't like it, it's fine. You can just give it to someone else. That's my other thing is I always give books away after I finish them. So I feel like there's something, maybe it's because of all those years of going to the library, but it doesn't feel right to me to keep a book. I always just want to kind of pass it back on into the ether. Awesome. And I want to switch over to some of the champagne questions that I like to ask, or I should say that I like to serve every guest. And maybe it's appropriate to skip down to this question. And I realize with you in particular, how enormous this question probably is going to be. But what is the most inspiring or useful book you've ever read? I like inspiring or useful rather than favorite. That makes it a little bit easier. Um, But I, you know, I mean, for me, it's kind of like, I, I feel like I read books so often that really change me, that really stay with me. Um, Margaret Atwood has been kind of a stalwart in books that have changed me. I mean, everyone's talking about The Handmaid's Tale now, but for me it was The Blind Assassin. That was really the book that made me think very differently about relationships, about narratives, about stories, about what it means to tell your life as a story and live your life as if it's a story you're telling. Um, you know, it, it, the structure is fascinating. It's basically a story within a story within a story. And she does it so deftly and so beautifully. And um, that book is inspiring for me as a reader and as a woman and as a writer and as a person who is um, interested in human nature. So, so that's definitely one of them. And Kara, how do you organize and manage your tasks on a day-to-day basis, and how do you set priorities? So I've been learning about bullet journaling lately, and I kind of aspire to bullet journal, but I'm not there yet. But I do sort of, what I do naturally is kind of a modified version of the bullet journal, which is I have an ongoing notebook. Um, Usually every day or every few days, whenever it gets pretty messy, I'll rewrite my to-do list. So I'll cross things out as they go, and then every few days I'll transfer them to a clean page um, and then I'll rip out the old page and so there's no record of anything ever having been accomplished. It's all just this very ephemeral um, and basic system. But I rely very deeply on Gmail Archive. I rely very deeply on tools that are intuitive and that kind of serve as an extension of my brain. I was never a great filer. I was never really um, a person who organized things by more than aesthetic principles. So, um, you know, I'm really lucky that I have the tools that I have. But my to-do lists tend to be pretty minimal. I tend to do things right away. So I don't have so much to remember. Um, but sometimes when I'm doing something in my life that's more 
of a project, like going on a trip or going to a friend's wedding or moving, packing for a move, I'll do like a kind of more illustrated, um, beautiful to-do list as a way to get inspired about the project and to kind of um, get my motivation straight by doing something aesthetically pleasing. And how do you set priorities or how do you lift the tasks out of these pages that are important? So for me, um, when something is not getting done, it's always about anxiety. Always. So if (laughs) thank you for the honesty for a little while and I haven't done it yet, the first thing I do now is I ask myself, why haven't I done this yet? Something about this. I'm avoiding and let's figure out why. So maybe it's that I haven't booked a doctor's appointment because I know that I'm a month late in booking the doctor's appointment and I know that she's going to remind me that I'm a month late and I'm going to feel a little bit guilty and I'm going to feel a little bit irresponsible and maybe as a punishment for that, I'm going to have some serious disease when I finally do go to the doctor. So that's just like one little anxiety (laughs) hamster wheel my mind might get on which can be easily resolved by just making the appointment. They literally never yell at you for being a month late. That's a completely made-up thing. So once I've, like, acknowledged why it's not getting done, or maybe, you know, I really want to write a letter um, to a relative and send them this book that's been making me think of them, but I, I don't really know what to say, and I feel kind of bad that I haven't reached out in a while, so I'm putting off writing the card. Um, so I think, like, sometimes for things like that that don't have a particular deadline but that I know I want to do and for some reason they just kind of keep getting pushed to the bottom of the priority list, if I can try to look at why I'm not making a priority and then kind of try to just give myself space to do it and really enjoy having done it and the productivity of having done it. And um, sometimes for me, like, if I, if I want to write a note to someone, like, early morning is a great time for that when I can kind of sit down and I'm not bombarded with emails yet, carving out the space um, – that's kind of the right time and space for that project. Um, And then for for smaller things, I notice that it tends to be a lot about environment. There are certain things, there are certain tasks that I can only do well when I'm at my desk at work. Um, You know, if I'm trying to do an email from my phone um, at 7 o'clock, like it's just just not going to happen. I'm not going to want to do it. And if I go in fresh the next day and do it from my desk, like that environment, that physical space will make it feel that much easier. So kind of, I think it's a a combination of like tricking myself uh, into, (laughs) you know, using the tools that I know will get me to actually do things and kind of using them to hack my motivations so that they get done. Awesome. And thank you for really digging into kind of like what the thought process is there. Because that's, that's something I want other women to hear and to understand because sometimes we just need a better idea. Like we know the system that we're using is broken, but we don't know what to replace the broken system with. So I deeply appreciate you really getting into the weeds with it. And one of the other questions I have is, I know this is sort of a cultural fascination these days, but definitely as someone who helps other women strategize how they want to be living their life and being intentional about the choices they make, I am realizing more and more our morning routine and our routines in the evening, whether that be after work or right before bed, you know, the cut points are different for everyone. So I wanted to get a sense, what are some of your most impactful habits? And I guess if you would share one from the morning and one from the later part of the day. 
So my biggest thing in the mornings is that I've always been a morning person. I've always been a person who likes to wake up early. Um, when I went to sleepovers, often at five in the morning, I'd be in the bedroom <laughs> reading my friend's copy of the Phantom Tollbooth because I was bored and awake and no one else was up yet. So mornings have always kind of been my thing. And my mom is like that too. Like even more, she will still get up at four in the morning. Like when I go home, um, there's coffee being made and dishes being put away like, <laughs> at unholy hours. Um, so I think just like giving myself, giving myself enough space in the morning um, that I can really have some time before I have to rush into the day. So getting up a couple hours before I need to leave. Um, sometimes, but not always, I'll go for a run or do some yoga or just some stretching and kind of ease into being physically awake. Um, I'm a big breakfast person, and I don't necessarily like breakfast foods for breakfast. I'm really into leftovers. I'm really into breakfast salads, usually something like pretty savory and significant to start my day. Um, and I think also just making my first interactions with people at the office really nice. Um, I'm lucky to work with some amazing women um, and some amazing men that I'm always excited to see every day and kind of taking a minute to have a little conversation and a check-in and how was your weekend, make coffee together. Um, I feel like that, that's really nice too. And then in the evening, uh, going to bed, going to bed at a reasonable hour is my, my biggest thing, eight hours of sleep. It's not unusual that I'll go to bed at 10.30. Sleep is, is really a gift you can give yourself. So I feel like that's my major after work thing. Yes. And I have, I have to say I'm incredibly impressed because going to bed early was something I was never able to accomplish in the city. And maybe it's my love of rock and roll shows, but it, it was something I was never able to do. So it's really impressive to hear that you're in bed a lot by 10.30 or so. Well, I've noticed that I really love apartments where, like my last apartment, my bedroom was adjacent to a neighbor's backyard and they would have a lot of parties in the summer. And now, like if I have my windows open, there's people across the street who are like always playing music on the stereo. And I feel like that's kind of my ideal social situation as being like party adjacent where I can hear it, <laughs> but I'm actually in bed. Um, so and I feel like I wouldn't have that anywhere except New York. So it's kind of ideal. That's amazing. Party adjacent. <laughs> amazing and Kara when you are totally spent what do you do to revive yourself when I when I'm really emotionally struggling like when I'm really just having a hard time feeling really blah or feeling really sad or feeling like there's something I can't quite get through um read a poem like if I don't feel up to consuming anything else and I don't really want to talk to anyone um just reading a rereading a poem that I love or finding a new poem that hits home um really always always helps me um and if it's more of like a physical kind of burnout um you know in the summer I think a lot of us travel a lot there's a lot of long weekends there's a lot of celebrations for other people and graduations and weddings and, you know, giving a lot of your energy to other people and, and creating experiences, um, taking time by myself, especially outdoors, especially just going for walks. Like one of the things that I love about the city is that you can just walk and walk and walk and you never run out of space to walk. Um, it doesn't always have to be going for a run. It doesn't always have to be, you know, for exercise, just going for a walk and looking at houses or going through the park. Um, 
and letting myself think always helps. Nice. And it's the city is definitely intoxicating in that way, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I would just see strangers or see, you know, you'd peek in someone's window as you're walking by and just being able to kind of be creative. Like, I feel like that's the only mode in my life where I'm fiction based, where it's like seeing people or seeing this house and coming up with a whole elaborate story of like, what might be going on there or where where that person might be coming from or going to. There's this amazing um, Zadie Smith essay called Joy, which I love, but, you know, she talks about sort of the, the primary joys and pleasures in people's lives and in her life. And one of the ones she talks about that she shares with her husband is watching other people and describing them and making up stories about them. And that kind of automatic and constant presence of so many people, so many stories, um, in the city is really powerful. And it really, it makes me feel never lonely. Like even if there's a day that I don't want to get out of bed, that, you know, my big accomplishment is going to the laundromat, um, just being adjacent to so many other lives and so many other people's emotions and activities and excitements and celebrations and disappointments, um, and feeling that energy always kind of keeps me, um, keeps me company. Yes. Yes, I can totally relate. And Kara, I have to say, since the moment you agreed to be on this podcast, I have been nearly salivating at asking you the next three questions. Because I, oh, I, I really can't wait to hear what you have to say. How would you define being a modern woman? One of the things that's changed for me um, in the last years around my feminism is thinking about the ways that I have so much privilege that interacts with my feminism in which my primary role in so many interactions and so many conversations is to lift up other people's voices. And I feel like in so many areas of my life, I have a level of power that um, maybe I didn't as a little girl realize that I would have. Um, I feel like I have a level of control over my life, a level of independence, a level of financial independence and stability, um, a, a real strength in my community, in my work, um, in my life that, that gives me a place to stand from. And from there, I feel like my job is really to think about what modern feminism is, is not addressing as well. Think about the struggles that we're not talking about as well, rather than fixating on okay, some of us have gotten to a point where we can have a family and a job and political opinions, and it's great. Um, who's still being left out? Um, who's still subject to a, a lot of violence and a lot of inequality? And so for me, you know, when I, I can't think of feminism right now without, without thinking about um, the rights that so many people are losing in this country and, and are, are, are in threat of losing um, obviously for a lot of us, we're concerned about reproductive rights, but there are so many other things that so many other women are fighting for, um, women who are immigrants, um, black women, women of color, transgender women. And I feel like those struggles for me are so much a part of being a modern woman and, and thinking about those struggles and fighting those struggles and, and trying to fight alongside people um, who are doing that work is probably the biggest way that I, I think about my fem feminism now. Um, I think also there's a certain 
in some ways, I feel like the conversations that I have with women, um, with other women now, the, the things that I learn from them, the, the level of openness and frankness, and maybe this is an age thing. Maybe as I, I get close to 30, there's a sort of um, less surface in the interactions that we have with one another. And so for me, there's, there's just the strengthening of these friendships and of these um, conversations that to me is really powerful. And there's kind of a solidarity there. There's kind of an idea that we're, we're building something or building towards something in this political climate where we're trying to get somewhere. And I'm not sure that I can really see the outlines of what it is yet, but for me, there's, there's kind of a momentum um, and, and a, a fight to, to have. And I feel like for me, that's a big part of my feminism. And for me, you know, being a woman is mostly about my feminism, I think. So what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? So, I mean, I think that one of the things that we, we really should talk about is the ways in which kind of mainstream feminism are not only not inclusive, but are in some ways detrimental um, to other people's struggle. And, you know, I think that we've seen a lot of that momentum in things like the Women's March um, in the kind of uh, rallying around reproductive rights. And that's, that's really good. That's really important. Um, but, you know, there's this, there are these photos, these pretty iconic photos of, um, you know, police officers in the pink pussy hats at the women's march and that's that's the kind of feminism that's the kind of feminism that is not particularly engaged in police brutality is not particularly engaged in racism is not particularly engaged in homophobia and transphobia and um that's not really fighting the struggles that we need to fight um so i think you know it's a hard conversation but i think just just questioning where we can push farther what issues tend to get more resources and more attention, um, pushing ourselves to learn about issues that affect us less immediately maybe, but um, that are really pretty important and immediate. Um, so, you know, I, I think the question is different for everyone, but it's sort of like, where are the gaps for you? What are the things that you could learn more about? Um, where are the issues where you could explore and, and see if maybe you have some assumptions to um, examine or, or think about. And then coming at this question from a different angle, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I feel like I care a lot less about what I look like than I used to, and that's pretty great. Um, <laughs> Amen. I feel, like, I feel like there's a sort of, um, you know, I don't know if this is just anecdotal. I don't know if this is because I, you know, I've switched industries, but I feel like I notice at work a sort of, um, like I notice women wear less makeup. And I also want to say that I think that people who wear full makeup every day and who love to, like it's also amazing and great. And I, there's nothing I like more than looking at pictures of people's amazing full faces of makeup. Um, but I used to feel like I had to wear makeup to work. I used to feel like in order to be presentable, I had to straighten my hair. Um, I used to feel like in order to go to a meeting, I had to get a manicure. And I feel like I've sort of backpedaled on that a little bit. And I've noticed that there don't seem to be any um, serious repercussions. I mean, you know, when you wear makeup every day and then you go in without it, everyone says, are you sick? But if you just don't wear it from the beginning, 
it's a little easier. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's a, the idea of self-care is really great to me because it's the idea that you can spend a lot of energy and a lot of effort focusing on yourself. You can spend a lot of time grooming if that feels good to you. You can spend a lot of time, um, you know, looking a certain way and, and having a certain, um, presentation to the world and that can be really great self-care that can be really in some cases subversive um in some cases empowering that can be really great but you also don't have to and those things are kind of the same this idea that you know feeling comfortable in your skin and feeling comfortable moving through the world is for me a big part of the goal in my life what I want for other women um we can't feel comfortable moving through the world when we're being threatened when we're being harassed we also can't feel comfortable moving through the world if we're not dressed in a way that we've been told that we have to. Um, and so I think really just trying to look deeply at what you're doing because you want to and because you like it and what you're doing because you think you want to and you're supposed to like it. And that's, I think, an, an ongoing struggle for me and, and many women, but it's always worth engaging with. Yes. And I have to laugh because about three minutes before I dialed you to begin recording this podcast, I realized how damp and cold and yucky it is out and how damp and cool it is in the house where I'm recording. And literally, as we've been speaking today, I was fully dressed and I was cold and the closest thing I had to my desk that I could throw on quickly was my bathrobe. So I have been recording this whole podcast <laughs> wearing a bathrobe, not giving there a shit. There you go. <laughs> That's great. That's office wear. <laughs> it's very glamorous office wear. And Kara, before I let you totally escape, what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know? If they can take away anything from our conversation today, what would you like it to be? Well, I think one of the things that's been really exciting for me as I get older is thinking about um, how many opportunities I have to change, to change my opinions, um, to change my perspective, to change my knowledge base, to change how I choose to present myself to the world. Um, and that can be a constant evolution. I feel like I've I've made decisions in the past that, were then no longer right for me and being able to let them go and try something else and giving myself the gift of saying, it's okay not to be right. It's okay that you weren't right about this thing. Um, whether it's, you know, pivoting to a new job or letting go of, of a habit that isn't serving you or letting go of a friendship or starting a new friendship or a new job or moving or, you know, any of those kind of quote unquote big decisions that we make, um, you can keep making them again and again. And, you know, I think, one of the things that I struggle with and I think many women think about is, you know, which decisions are feminist decisions. Um, and that can be really hard. And I think it's, you know, a lot about just getting in touch with what you really feel and what you really believe and um, engaging with it in a way that you can speak to it. And I think the most important conversations that you have are the conversations you have with yourself. And um, I feel very lucky in that the work that I do kind of, serves what I want to put out into the world. Um, and I think now more than ever, you know, I, I always think a lot about the phrase, the personal is political and, and 
I know that there are, are issues with that phrase and, and ways that it doesn't encapsulate everything um, about how privilege insulates us from, from so much. But I think just really engaging in daily life with the knowledge that you are interacting with lots of people who are um, living in a world and having a very different experience than you are and listening and acknowledging your own struggles and acknowledging other people's struggles and all of that. Um, but mostly just kind of listening to yourself and to other people and being in touch with, with the stories that they're telling uh, has been really helpful for me. Thank you so much. And Kara, if someone listening wants to follow your work or connect with you, what's the best way to do it? And I can make sure they have all the links and whatnot. Yeah, so the Clever Cookster podcast is once a week, um, and we're on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and on the QDT website. So you can go to quickanddirtytips.com slash clevercookster for the podcast. Um, and it's really fun. It's mostly interviews with cookbook authors and chefs and other food media people. Um, we just did a really fun interview with Barbara Lynch. She's an amazing um, chef and restaurateur, and, you know, I try to interview a lot of authors and um I'm on Twitter at Kara Lee Rhoda and also Instagram and also cookster.com and also Flatiron Books. And I guess that's about it. Awesome. I'll make sure everyone listening has all of those ways to get a hold of you. And Kara, this has been just such an amazing adventure. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for... Well, thank you so much. Yes, this was such a joy. So thank you. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing, and I really appreciate the opportunity, and thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Kara again. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you really dug this episode with Kara as much as I did making it and having this conversation. Don't forget, you can find all the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoursalon.com. L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. New shows will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. And if you want a reminder of when new shows come out, there's a couple ways you can do that. And one is just subscribe in iTunes or subscribe in Stitcher and it'll automatically populate for you. Or if you're the email kind of person and want to have links to the show notes really handy, then the best way that you can do that is head over to the website and sign up for the newsletter. You can literally scroll all the way down to the bottom of most pages on the site and it'll say, get email from me. And that'll be email from me, yours truly, Kara, in your box, probably a couple times a month. And as always, I want to thank the people that have helped with the show from when it was an idea to right now. And some of those people are my husband and producer, Craig Snyder. He helps me and my guests all sound lovely and levels checked and does Pro Tools magic that I can't even fathom. And I always deeply appreciate his help. And also to our friend Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, who wrote the theme song that you hear, and the High Dials who performed it with him. 
So thank you. It always makes me feel excited to hear that theme song and hopefully that translates into the show for the rest of you. And before you run off into your day, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down. See you next time.